Welcome back to the next community podcast. I am Angelo Luciani along with two of my colleagues who will be guest hosting today, Robert Corradini and Tommy Gustafson, who are from the Nutanix Alliance team. Hey guys. Hey, how are you? Hey, Angelo. How's it going? Excited to be on here today. Great. Good to have you guys. On today's podcast, we chat with Simon Pierman from 5.9 Software. And for those that may not know, 5.9 is a virtualization management and security company. It was great connecting with Simon and talking about virtualization security. And I want to find out from you guys, what was your one takeaway from the interview? Robert? Uh, my takeaway was really understanding Simon's um, understanding of where physical security is and how it differs with virtual security and where the future of that is, since we are are living in a virtualized world. And that's really where my takeaway was. I've been a fan of Simon for years, so it was great to be able to talk to him about these subjects and listen to him. How about you, Tommy? Yeah, so I think it's interesting from an alliance perspective, um, what we can do together with 5.9 and Nutanix. After talking with Simon, it's really clear that 5.9 is really delivering um, simplicity and a simple user experience for management and security for Hyper-V. And they seem to have a really unique position in the marketplace and definitely excited to see how we can expand our reach into the Hyper-V market and get more customers on board. Um, Of course, focusing on that secure, simple environment for Hyper-V and for Microsoft Cloud environments. Awesome. Great. So with that, let's go to the interview. So hi, Simon. How are you? Hey, I'm great, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on the show. You know, I've been working with Nutanix for several years, back when I used to be Microsoft's uh, worldwide technical evangelism lead. And I'm happy to be able to continue the relationship now that I've moved over to 5.9 Software. Fantastic. And Simon, what is your role with 5.9? Currently, I am the Vice President of Business Development and Marketing. So I'm really responsible for helping build uh, different relationships throughout the industry such as with Nutanix, as well as really kind of driving our entire marketing campaign and strategy to try to build awareness. We have some great solutions here. And, you know, a lot of people are even surprised because I left Microsoft to go join 5.9. But we really do offer some unique solutions around security and management that no one else in the industry does. And so for me, you know, I was personally passionate about really kind of taking this opportunity, looking at these great new technologies, and really trying to get 5.9 software into every Hyper-V data center worldwide. Oh, awesome. I actually been, uh, you know, as an IT enthusiast for many years and as an engineer, I've been actually watching you on Channel 9 and various other ventures online. And um, Very cool. Fan. It's been quite a journey. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it has, um, especially in technology. Um, so uh, what made you partner up with Nutanix and how did you hear about us? Well, you know, Nutanix is one of the leaders in hyperconverged systems. And, you know, from spending a lot of time with Microsoft, Nutanix was really one of the forerunners as far as figuring out the easiest way to go and deliver these uh, large-scale solutions to customers. You know, the reality is people are really starting to benefit from building what we call a private cloud. You know, having the advantage of the consolidated hardware, the automation, the monitoring, and the self-service. But the real reality is most customers are failing when they try to build those different parts themselves. When they have these different, you know, storage vendors, network vendors, compute and servers, and then trying to put them together and have them work flawlessly, that's been a huge challenge for many Microsoft customers, just because there's so many variables in the stack. And so that's why these converged systems are really becoming not just popular, but almost becoming required by many large organizations. 
And with Nutanix being one of the forerunners, you know, it was a great and very obvious partnership for myself, both with Microsoft and now in my new role with Five9 to want to work with you guys to not only, you know, be able to support these leading hyperconverged systems, but also using Five9 software to be able to provide better management and better security for them as well. And Simon, kind of taking a step back for folks that may not be familiar with Five9, how long has the company been around and what are some of the core pillars of Five9's products and software and what you do? Well, Five9 was founded in 2009, just after the first version of Hyper-V was introduced. And we've actually only been building software for Hyper-V. You know, one way that I like to look at it actually is really taking a lot of the best of what VMware does and then applying that to Hyper-V. So we really have two core product offerings. We have a management solution and we have a security solution. The management solution looks a lot like vCenter, where it's a kind of single consolidated interface. It has many of the features of System Center, but at about one-tenth the cost. So we're really trying to encourage VMware administrators that are using Hyper-V for the first time to try it out, or SMB customers that you know, need that centralized management for their virtualized resources, but for whatever reason, System Center just isn't the right fit for them. Now, with our security product, we actually took a look at what VMware had done with their vShield technology, and that basically provides agentless security. And so what that means is you just go and install things on each of your virtualization hosts, and it automatically and immediately protects all of those virtual machines running behind the host without ever actually having to go and log into each individual VM. So there are some very cool technologies out there. And um, again, we only work for Hyper-V. We don't do anything for VMware, but we just kind of see what they're doing efficiently and apply that to the Microsoft stack. And now we have over 60,000 users uh, using our free and paid versions of our technologies. So this is basically agentless. This is all at the network layer. That's what you're saying, Simon? Yeah, that's correct. So if you kind of think about how any type of data, and that includes things like viruses or malware, if any type of data actually gets to that virtual machine, it has to go through the network. And that includes the physical network layer, then it goes to the Hyper-V host, and then the virtual network layer. And so what we basically do is we go and intercept that traffic as it's going through the virtual network. And if you kind of think about what a network packet contains, it contains a header, which includes things such as the protocol and the uh, routing information, and then it includes the data. And so what we're able to do is actually sit at the kernel level, intercept that traffic, and take a look at that data and say, is this type of network traffic allowed? Yes or no? Is this destination and source allowed? Yes or no? We can scan the data if it's unencrypted and do uh, active protection to see whether it includes any type of viruses and decide you know, whether we want to alert the administrator based on that. So we're really trying to go and add this level of security one layer below when the data actually goes and reaches that end user. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm very security-minded. I came from uh, a secure, as an engineer and very security-minded. But can you kind of go over with our folks in the crowd about virtual security versus physical security? And does it really require a different mindset? I think it does. And that's just because virtual security, it has to be dynamic. You know, if you kind of think about a virtualized environment, you know, a, a highly virtualized data center or a cloud-based infrastructure, things are constantly changing. You know, there's new virtual machines being provisioned, new virtual networks, new virtual disks, new virtual switches. 
And so for administrators, it's kind of challenging to make sure that those are always immediately protected. Now, if you kind of look at traditional data center security, and we call this endpoint security, this is where you actually would have to go and connect to every physical server, install a security agent, run scans. And that was effective in the old world when, you know, you would go and buy 20 or 30 servers, but those would never change. Now, the challenge we have today, though, in these dynamic IT environments with all of these new resources coming up, coming offline, being created in some cases by the public. You know, if you're a public cloud provider, you have end users creating VMs that you may not even know about. Well, the challenge is how do you secure them if you're not sure when these machines are going to appear? This is kind of why we decided, you know what, it really doesn't make sense to do endpoint security anymore. There's a lot of challenges with that. You know, the administrator first, they have to log into that virtual machine to actually go and install those agents. And in many cases, they may not have permission. There may be privacy or compliance laws preventing them. So we really wanted to provide a way to guarantee automatic and immediate protection without ever having to actually do anything, log into or install anything within that virtual machine itself. Excellent. So Simon, that kind of you know, leads us into another question, and it's around hybrid cloud, which has obviously been a big buzzword in the last few years, and certainly for Microsoft today. How can customers with hybrid cloud benefit, hybrid cloud environments benefit from 5.9 security solutions? Well, whenever you think about the hybrid cloud, you've got to think that you're accessing different types of data that could be running in different types of data centers. You know, when you think about hybrid cloud, you're essentially connecting existing on-premise resources up to some other type of cloud system. And this means that there's different people controlling the servers, different people maybe controlling the virtual machines. And so what we really want to be able to provide is a consistent security management experience as well. Now, if you think about a large cloud environment, chances are you even have different types of guest operating systems that your virtual machines are using. You might have traditional Windows Server, then you might have some VDI, Windows Client, and then you may even have some Linux virtual machines. You know, I recently heard that one out of five Hyper-V virtual machines even runs Linux. So if you're in this large environment, right, there's a lot of diversity. And as an administrator, it's going to be really important for you to have a single security solution that protects everything. Now, the way we wanted to go and present this is we don't really care about what your guest operating system is running because we go and protect it from those threats before that threat, that virus, that malware even gets there. So what this means is you can have a single security solution that protects your Windows server, Windows client, and Linux virtual machines. That's easy to use. You have a consistent set of rules. You have a consistent database with the signatures or the definitions. You update it in a single centralized location. You don't have to go and have a different solution for your Linux VMs or for your Windows Server VMs or your client VMs because we don't care what's running at that endpoint since we're going and actually intercepting that network traffic as it goes through the virtual network we could go and block, we can apply the firewalls, we can scan for viruses before any of those threats even get there. Now, the second kind of key thing about having this hybrid cloud environment and offering protection there is making protection easier for end users by offering security through self-service. Now, what this basically means is you could go through some type of self-service portal. In our case, we use Azure Pack, which is the on-premise version of Microsoft Azure. 
And you could allow your end users to manage their security very easily. They could essentially go to the website, they could select a new virtual machine that they've created, and they can simply turn on antivirus, turn on intrusion detection, turn on anti-malware, turn on traffic scanning. Then they can select different templates to apply based on what type of virtual machine they're using, whether it's a Linux virtual machine, whether it's a SQL server or a web server. That's very so cool. So our whole goal of having these hybrid environments, make it easy for the end user. Let the administrator kind of set up the initial rules, provide that high level of security, but provide that end user with the customization that they need for their specific service or application. So basically security as a service. Uh, as another acronym. That's out right. SecAS. <laughs> SecAS, yep. As we didn't have enough. <laughs> Not enough, of course. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, you obviously on your management product, um, I want to switch gears a little bit, and you have your management product, um, and it's a great product for as a, another source for managing Hyper-V. Can you give us a little glimpse of what is the future between 5.9 and Microsoft going forward with around Hyper-V and even security? Absolutely. So um, our management product, again, our goal with that management product was to provide this kind of centralized console. You know, as we kind of look at how people manage Hyper-V, there's almost two extremes that you can take today. You can use the Inbox Hyper-V tools or you can use System Center. And, you know, the Inbox Hyper-V tools, they are free, so to speak, you know, with your, uh, with your purchase of Windows Server. But you have to go to several different interfaces to really complete tasks. For example, if you wanted to deploy a VM on a cluster, you'd go to Server Manager, Hyper-V Manager, File Services, Network Manager to do NIC teaming, then Failover Cluster Manager, and you may even have to run some PowerShell scripts just to get that clustered virtual machine running. Now, if you're new to Hyper-V or you know, you're a former VMware admin, that's kind of a lot of different places to go and things to do to complete a task. So what we wanted to do is just really consolidate that and provide a different alternative to a system center. Now, system center by itself is a great product, but you now have to buy an entire suite with it. In the past, if you wanted to just manage your virtualized resources, you would simply go by virtual machine manager. But since system center 2012 was introduced, you now get all of these different components within the bundle. So whether you want it or not, you're also gonna get things like operations manager, orchestrator, data protection manager, configuration manager, app controller, service manager, and some other different components. And so that's quite a lot of an investment, you know, if you're just really looking to manage that virtualized infrastructure. The other challenge that we heard around um, smaller companies wanted to deploy System Center is that System Center itself requires dedicated hardware to get up and running. You need to have separate uh, VMs for your management server, separate SQL databases. And so there's actually some cost overhead just to provide the management infrastructure to run the rest of your infrastructure. So what we really tried to do with 5.9 Manager was just have a single interface that was slim, that was trim, that didn't require dedicated infrastructure that could go and manage your large environment. And so we've included things that System Center has such as load balancing, where if a host gets overloaded, you can live migrate the VMs to a different host. We have best practice analyzers built in. We have monitoring built in. So almost like a lightweight version of operations manager. And so we've got a lot of support from Microsoft here because we are really targeting those SMBs, customers that 
really need that centralized management, but system center just isn't right for them. Excellent. So that's great, Simon. It sounds like you guys are really focusing on the customer and the end user experience and providing a lot of functionality and simplicity around Hyper-V that has frankly been lacking. Right, Rob? And I'm sure you've seen that as well. And that kind of leads into our next question around Hyper-V itself and the whole ecosystem around Hyper-V. Obviously, there's quite a lot of folks that are using VMware for virtualization, but at the same time, so many folks are now utilizing Hyper-V, turning to Hyper-V as the hypervisor is becoming very much a commodity. Um, you know, our stance at Nutanix is really to give our customers the choice of hypervisor, and we've seen a large increase in the number of Hyper-V customers. So, Simon, from your experience and kind of looking to the next few years, where do you see the hyper, Hyper-V market going and the Hyper-V ecosystem going in terms of size and adoption? I mean, I only really see it going up. Um, you know, my background, I've always been part of Hyper-V since it was first incubated. Um, I was actually on the Windows Server engineering team while Hyper-V was being developed. So I got to, you know, work on some of the initial features there. And so it's been exciting for me personally to see the growth of this going from, you know, an idea, an incubation product, all the way up to, I think, right now, Hyper-V has somewhere between 30 and 35% market share. Now, obviously, VMware is a great solution. You know, they're the established market leader. I myself, I'm also a VMware certified professional. So, you know, I've really tried to uh, take it upon myself to kind of understand, to be able to compare and contrast both of these technologies. Now, the way I've kind of seen the market happen is that in a lot of, um, of the more high-tech countries, the ones that were adopting virtualization first, they've tended to be staying with VMware. You know, they've kind of been the established player in the market. They've already become familiar with their solution. And so for countries like United States, Canada, and Western Europe, VMware does still tend to be dominant. Now, Hyper-V, on the other hand, you know, when it first came out, it wasn't really enterprise-ready. However, since 2012, and especially 2012 R2 and the next versions, there's a lot of excitement. People are comparing it feature by feature to VMware. And in many cases, Hyper-V is introducing new features that VMware is now following. So in emerging markets, countries that haven't yet made the full shift over to virtualization, we're seeing a lot more Hyper-V growth and a lot more Hyper-V prospects. Um, in several countries in South America, Central Europe, and Asia, Hyper-V is actually the dominant hypervisor because a lot of these countries, you know, were started to evaluate their virtualization technologies for the first time, you know, only in the last two or three years. And they've said, hey, there's a lot of benefits for Hyper-V that I see over VMware with the cost, with the centralized management, with the hybrid cloud, and just the fact that most Microsoft workloads work better on Hyper-V than they do on VMware. So I'm excited with kind of the current growth where we're at. But as I look towards the next version of Windows Server in 2016, I'm even more excited about some of the great new features that they've been added. Now, probably the ones that are the most exciting, most compelling people are talking about are containers and nano server. Containers is another version of virtualization that allows for even better consolidation. If you kind of think about a virtual machine, what it's basically doing is virtualizing the hardware and providing a copy of that machine. But there's still a lot of overhead and repetitive parts. For each of those virtual machines that you're trying to copy, you still need to provide the full footprint for that operating system. It still has the full network stack, management stack, storage stack, etc. 
Now, on the other hand, what containers is trying to do is basically break down a virtual machine into even smaller parts so that you can have a bunch of virtual machines using a single operating system or a single networking stack or a single storage stack so that you still get some of the benefits of isolation, yet you get even better consolidation ratios running more on a single box. This is exactly what where people get stuck at is around understanding container technology and Docker and stuff of those nature. I'm glad you kind of went into that a little bit. I mean, it is confusing. And, you know, a lot of people say, will containers replace virtual machines? And the answer to that is no. They're really going to be complementary technologies. You know, the advantage of the uh, containers is that you get a better consolidation. But the big disadvantage is you don't get the full privacy and isolation for each of your virtual machines. So really, the reality is what we're going to kind of see happen in the industry here is for large hosting providers, they're going to give each of their customers a single virtual machine or a collection of virtual machines. And then within each of those virtual machines, one per customer, then they will use containerization where they could break it apart, where they don't have to worry about security. And so this will kind of give everybody the best of both worlds. The hosters get to provide that isolation and security at the per VM per customer level. And then each of the customers gets better consolidation, better scale, better resource utilization by using those containers within their own personal virtual machine. So we definitely see them um, not so much being competitive, but in many cases being complementary technologies. Now, for me, the second uh, big investment that I'm excited about is uh, what's known as NanoServer. A nano server is essentially a very, very stripped down version of the operating system that really only uh, runs a couple of core features and uh, technology stacks. You know, it primarily runs hypervisors, storage, and networking. If you kind of think in the past of the evolution of Windows Server, the most recent one that we're familiar with really is, you know, Server 2003 as kind of the first fully functional one with a full GUI. Of course, there were some earlier versions. They had limited functionality back with 2000, back with NT. Um, but we really kind of, you know, consider in the industry, the first big stable one was 2003. Now, in Windows Server 2008, 2008 R2, and the 2012 wave, they introduced a version known as Windows Server Core. And Core is basically a smaller version. It removed the graphical user interface. It removed a lot of unnecessary features. And so the whole idea around that was if you have a smaller version of Windows, not only are you going to be able to deploy more copies, but more importantly, it's going to be even more secure. If there are fewer components that you need to service and patch, that means there are fewer vulnerabilities, fewer things that can be attacked. If you have fewer attacks or you know fewer updates, that means you have fewer reboots. Fewer reboots means you have higher availability. So kind of the initial vision of server core was really trying to reduce the amount of reboots you have, keep the systems online, keep them more stable. As an IT admin, that's obviously been great. And, you know, and it's, it's always been the weird misconception, and I, I kind of interject here, is that full server was better. <laughs> it's obviously not the case. We all know that. <laughs> so. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the big challenge we heard with people using Core was the fact it had no graphical user interface, so people had to go use PowerShell. Now, a lot of people, you know, they've been afraid of using PowerShell, right? They've got to write scripts. It's not as comfortable. They don't get that immediate response they get from a graphical user interface. So, in fact, the very first product, which 5.9 came up with, the original version of 5.9 Manager, 
was a GUI that ran on Windows Server Core. And that's still something that 5.9 Manager can do today. You can actually go and install the full graphical user interface on Server Core. So you can manage everything locally, just as if you had a, you know, that full instance running. Really? I did not know that. That's actually really cool. Now, that's the history. Now, Microsoft invested since then a lot in remoting. So nowadays, most people will just manage their core systems using a remote connection, you know, managing it remotely through Hyper-V Manager, Cluster Manager, System Center, whatever that is. So 5.9 Manager kind of evolved from just being a GUI for core to really trying to be the centralized management console for all of your Hyper-V infrastructure, the hosts, the clusters, the virtual machines, and then, of course, the storage and network that it needs as well. With Windows Server Core and this latest release in 2016, they wanted to take it one step further, where they've cut even more out of the host. There's going to be absolutely no GUI options, even for 5.9 Manager with Nano Server. And basically, Nano Server is just going to be the smallest, most compact version of this operating system possible. Now, this means that it can scale quickly. But more importantly, if you kind of think about a dynamic cloud environment, it allows it to burst very quickly. So as soon as you know you suddenly need to scale up, they can turn on instances of nano server in a matter of seconds, as opposed to a matter of minutes. So it really does provide this, uh, this dream of the instant scalability in the dynamic cloud environment. And nano server is actually going to be tied in very closely with containers. One of the key scenarios around containers is for developers to suddenly scale up or scale down based on incoming traffic demand. And that's exactly what nano is designed to do here, provide that quick scalability for different types of server workloads that will boot instantly, but yet doesn't take up a lot of actual footprint on the disk itself. So with 5.9 Manager, you know, we certainly view nano server as being, um, you know, kind of the recommended installation option for many future customers, many future deployments. And so we're committed to providing a GUI for Nano Server. And in fact, we can already do that today. We've actually been working with uh, the Nano Server and the Windows Server uh, engineering team with Jeffrey Snover so that we can provide the management interface with a full GUI for Nano Server. So that's going to be one of our uh, biggest investments coming out as part of our next releases to support Windows Server 2016. That is really cool. That's actually kind of something I was uh, wondering about with Nano Server. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, we're getting kind of short on time, um, Simon, but I kind of did want to kind of go into a little bit about your history. I, I'm very familiar with your history, but some of our um, podcast uh, listeners are not. You, you've been a technical evangelist for many years at Microsoft. So can you kind of give a little history of how you got started and become a technical evangelist? Absolutely. Um, you know, my IT, well, I always grew up, you know, uh, actually being a developer, being interested in coding, building websites. Uh, I went to university and uh, got my majors in computer science and economics and film studies. Um, I worked for a while and ultimately uh, found a great job at Microsoft as a program manager. And a program manager, they're kind of the guys that design the solutions write down the functionality, work with the customers before they actually hand it off to a developer to write the code. You know, for me, I just personally wasn't passionate about sitting there writing code. I was more interested in working with the customers and building up the business. But as a program manager, I really got to learn how engineering works at a large scale at an enterprise. 
So I did that for about four years working on the uh, failover clustering and high availability team right around when uh, Hyper-V was being developed. So I designed a lot of the cluster futures for Hyper-V. And after about four years of doing that, I had an opportunity to move into this uh, unusual sounding position of a technical evangelist. And, you know, even being at the company at Microsoft, I hadn't really heard about this role, but I was referred to it. And, you know, people said, hey, you like speaking to customers. It's a customer-facing opportunity. You get to grow the business. And more importantly, you get to really grow your technical skills. You work with customers on their uh, up-and-coming problems, do proof of concept, and really understand how this technology you've been building gets applied in the real world. So I moved over to that, uh, did that for about four years, um, starting off first as the guy just covering uh, virtualization. Then I moved to cover all of System Center, and then I moved to cover all of Windows Server, and then all of Azure Pack and all of hybrid cloud. So um, it was certainly um, you know, a, a role where you have to be able to quickly respond to new challenges, have to be willing to dive in and learn the new technologies. But it was really a great opportunity for me to learn and familiarize myself with the entire Microsoft ecosystem. And from there, you know, I presented a lot of conferences. Um, I was one of the founders of the Microsoft Virtual Academy still pretty active on that and continue to do work on Channel 9 and throughout the communities, you know, helping people learn about the Microsoft technologies and how to use them within their own data centers. That's awesome, Simon. Well, thanks for joining us today and, and helping to give back to the community and, uh, and joining us on this podcast. You know, I'm sure folks would love to follow you and keep track of what you guys are doing over at Five9. Can you give us a, a quick um, plug on your Twitter account and where folks can go to follow you for content and follow Five9 as well? Absolutely. So uh, I promote everything through my Twitter feed, which is at Simon Perryman. Now, my name is spelled a little unusual. It's S-Y-M-O-N-P-E-R-R-I-M-A-M. And from there, that's where I'll be announcing all of my other various webcasts, community activities, conferences, and things like that. Uh, my other main place that I post is on uh, the Five Nine Company blog. Um, again, the spelling's a little challenging. It's the number five letters N I N E dot com, and from there you'll see our webcast that we do every two to three weeks, and uh, then other different types of social engagements. And so, uh, certainly, if you're at any of the main Microsoft conferences, Five Nine's likely going to be one of the sponsors there. Or if not, I'll probably be there myself. I love to connect with you, so uh, you know, please don't hesitate to come find me. Wonderful. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of the Nutanix Community Podcast. And don't forget as well to go and follow the Nutanix Elevate Alliances program and the Nutanix Ready Twitter handles. That'll be at Nutanix Elevate, at Nutanix Elevate for the Elevate program, and at Nutanix Ready for our Nutanix Ready certification Stay tuned for more big things to come with 5.9 and with Nutanix. And once again, thanks for tuning in, and thanks so much to, uh, to Simon for joining us for this podcast today. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks a lot, Simon. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Follow Nutanix on Twitter for the latest news and announcements, and subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And you can continue the conversation on the next community at next.nutanix.com. And with that, I'm Angelo Luciani. I'm Robert Cordini. And I'm Tommy Gustafson. See you next time.